Namaste and welcome everyone to this Wednesday 10 p.m. show. And uh, this Wednesday 10 p.m. show, of course, we have uh, as always Sri Vibhuti Ja. And today we have again got uh, Robert Spencer with us. And uh, please note that uh, Wednesday 10 p.m. is always an English show. Uh, welcome, Robert. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Good to see you again. Namaste, Vibhuti ji. How are you? Namaste, going? and good to be the trio meets again. That's right. Okay. <laughs> trio meets again. Okay. Uh, and today we're going to talk about uh, the 2007 modern classic uh, written by uh, Robert, and that is the truth about Muhammad. And uh, I think this is my impression. I think Robert can correct me. At the time it was written, uh, I think it was a pioneering work because uh, uh, we didn't have the kind of research going into the historicity of uh, Mecca, Muhammad, and the Quran, uh, the kind that is happening today. So uh, I would be uh, very interested to know how you decided, or rather, how you contended with the historicity of uh, the Islamic uh, history? Well, there are actually two things involved in this. One is what the Islamic texts say. And then the second question is, as you noted, the historicity of those texts. It's very important to, to uh, study both of those questions because Muslims obviously believe that the texts are historically accurate and Islamic law is based on what they consider to be accurate about what Muhammad said and did. Consequently, it's very important for non-Muslims to know what the Islamic texts say about what Muhammad said and did. And so that's why I wrote The Truth About Muhammad. But in writing The Truth About Muhammad in particular, I saw that the difficulty with the historical accuracy of the texts was even greater than I had thought. And so in a second book, some years later, that I actually just revised and expanded last year, Did Muhammad Exist? I discussed the historicity of those texts. And it's very important to understand that as well. So that purely as a historical matter in the first place, but also so that uh, we can try to understand how exactly this phenomenon really developed and how we can best deal with it. But whatever we may think of how historically accurate the texts about Muhammad are, obviously Muslims still believe them. And so our first responsibility to understand, to know what's in those texts and to understand it still remains. Okay, that's uh, that's right. Uh, uh, and uh, so we begin uh, the story and uh, the texts that's, that, that are most important, uh, I guess, are... Uh, uh, the Sirat Rasulullah. Uh, can you just throw a little bit of light on the uh, Sirat Rasulullah? Which which text is the accurate one? I mean, it's supposed to be written by Ibn Ishaq, but then uh, uh, then there is Ibn Hisham and Tabari. So, uh, who is the accurate one? When did it get written? So, I think we can get get a correct idea of how it is written. This is immediately the problem we encounter when trying to understand the historicity of Muhammad because the primary text that we have, the, the oldest one, the largest one, 
that we have about Muhammad's life is, as you noted, the Sirat Rasulullah, the biography of the Prophet of Allah, the Messenger of Allah, written by Ibn Ishaq in or the 700s. And around the year 770. This is the book that every biography of Muhammad is based upon, whether they admit it or not. The truth about Muhammad that I wrote is primarily based upon that. Karen Armstrong's hagiographical biography of Muhammad is based on Ibn Ishaq. Martin Ling's very respected biography of Muhammad based on Ibn Ishaq. Every last one is based on Ibn Ishaq. And yet Ibn Ishaq is writing in the 750s, 760s, 770s. Muhammad is supposed to have died in 632. Compounding the problem is that we don't actually have what Ibn Ishaq wrote in the 760s or 770s. We only have what Ibn Hisham copied from Ibn Ishaq and added to it. We don't know what he added, what he augmented, what he embroidered in the 830s. So that takes us to 200 years after Muhammad. And then Tabari writes another very important biographical uh, source about Muhammad even later. Qurtubi, all of the very important biographies of Muhammad, Ibn Sa'd, they come after Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham. And so you're talking about a very large gap. It's as if in the United States right now, we're seeing the first biographies appear about George Washington. Well, it's 200 years after he lived. We don't have any idea what might have been added to the oral traditions in that span. And this is the problem. And when you try to go back to the seventh century, the century that Muhammad is supposed to have actually lived, and see what exactly was written in the seventh century itself about Muhammad, in the first place, you find there's hardly anything written about Muhammad in the 7th century. And also that what there is written about Muhammad in the 7th century, none of it, absolutely none of it, corresponds to the prophet of Islam. In other words, every mention, and there are very few to start with, but every mention of Muhammad from the 7th century talks about him doing things that Islamic tradition doesn't have him doing. So... It may not even be the same guy. And this, uh, the, this is just the beginning of the historical problems with all this material. Right. And my uh, advice to the viewers, please keep asking questions. Bhivutaji, do you want to augment? Yeah, I mean, I, we are all stuck with the wonderment of uh, Robert's discoveries and findings. You know, it is very interesting that when you talk about whether this is a true Muhammad or real Muhammad or not, is that the reason? Is that the reason that when people like you and I and many others who, when they quote the text, there is so much virulent attack on everyone? Is it because the authenticity is missing? We do not know the truth. Nobody knows, seems to know the truth. And But based on the available evidence, we are questioned, we are targeted, and we are maligned. How does one address that question? If the authenticity is not determined, how does that become a rule of law that we must subscribe to, submit to, or die? It seems to me to be a manifestation of a very great insecurity 
it's a brittle religious faith that can't stand up to historical inquiry or questioning. It's very strange that uh, you have this kind of anger when people raise these questions, because if, if we look on a personal level, this is the way someone reacts when he's challenged and knows that he's not really on very strong ground. He's liable to lash out in anger. Well, if you're lashing out in anger because you're not on very strong ground, that raises larger implications about uh, the entire belief system. And so it seems to me to be an admission of weakness, of the weakness of their position, that they attack people so viciously when they even raise these questions. You know, in the West, the West has a, has a, a Christian history and heritage. And yet for the last 200 some years, there has been intense historical study of the origins of Christianity. And many people have determined that they cannot continue to be Christians on the basis of that historical inquiry. Other people have determined that on the basis of that historical inquiry, their faith is stronger than ever. But the point is, nobody's getting killed for it. There's great controversy about it, but nobody is saying this historical inquiry must not be undertaken and we will kill those who do it or we will destroy their reputations. But when it comes to Islam, this kind of historical inquiry has never been undertaken. Even when I first studied Islam back in the 80s, when I was in graduate school at the University of North Carolina, there was no hint that any of this was not historically accurate. There was no idea whatsoever that there was any historical problem with the Islamic texts. Nobody in academia has taken that up, very few people, rather, in academia have taken up this question since then. And that was a very long time ago. Uh, this is just not an issue that people are willing to discuss, even though they have no problem undertaking historical investigations of other religions. And, uh, right, uh, the first chapter of your book, The Truth About Muhammad, uh, I think uh, the uh, number two, serial number two, the first chapter, says, uh, is Islam a religion of peace and why it matters? Can you begin with that? Well, uh, Islam is a, a religion of peace, actually. It really is because uh, peace is the goal and the summit of everything that it is working for. In the Islamic perspective, Islam, peace, Islam, rather, submission is etymologically and theologically connected to salam, peace. That is, one achieves peace through submission. And the submission is not just the submission of the human being to Allah. The submission of... The, the Islam is built on a whole tower of submissions. There is the submission of the believer to Allah, but there's also the submission of the non-Muslim to the Muslim, the submission of the woman to the man. Everybody in creation is ultimately submitting, and not only to Allah, with the Muslim males at the top of the pyramid. And 
then once that submission is perfectly achieved, peace reigns in the world. Once Sharia Islamic law is imposed over all of us, then there'll be peace. The only reason why Muslims are supposed to be fighting is in order to achieve Sharia hegemony in the world. Once you have Sharia reigning all over the world, then you have peace. So, Islam is a religion of peace because once the dissenters are killed or forced to submit, then peace reigns everywhere. Right, but right. It, and that's why I think... We'll it, another two, question too here. You know. one, one minute. One minute sure, sure, sure. Uh, I think that's why 2.254 says that uh, all non-Muslims are oppressors. They have to be fought. See, a lot of people don't realize many people in the West, and I'm sure this happens in India as well, Islamic apologists say, you see, the Quran only talks about fighting against the oppressor. Right. And they, they assume <laughs> then that the person listening, the non-Muslim they're talking to, is going to think, oh, well, yes, we should fight against tyranny. Of course, that makes sense. So there's nothing wrong with this. But they don't realize that the oppressor is anybody who's ruling not according to Islamic law. And then the oppressor becomes everyone who has not submitted. You have to submit. Then how does this oppressor and the belief believer come to terms with itself? Because if the entire world becomes Islamic and submits itself to the doctrine, then who is an oppressor and who is the foreigner in the sense of Shia, Sunni, and many sects? And who will kill whom? Well, if you're in one, then there are, there are hadith that say there will be 72 sects and only one of them is right. But which one? Well, the one you're in, of course. And so the one you're in <laughs> it's, it is, is, is allowed to kill the others because they're heretical. And you have a death penalty against heresy. And so they are the oppressors because they are oppressing the souls of the people who are in this false doctrine, who have accepted this false teaching. And consequently, you have to fight against them. And so it's really the answer to your question is it's everyone against everyone because they all believe that they are the touchstone of what's correct. And then all the others are heretical and have to be fought. Can I then dare to say that they are also like Hindus, seekers? <laughs> I think there's some significant differences. Yes. I was <laughs> yes. referring to that point. And then everybody else who doesn't agree with me is, is what it is. But there's another important point in that emerges out of that. Your book is phenomenal. And I've been reading, reading it and read it once. And I will read it again. Because understanding things, the evidences are very important. But in terms of the modern context, you know, like today, uh, how does this, how does the entire theology, the entire negotiating tool is based on you agree with me or I'll kill you. And violence is the tool of negotiation. How does that, where did that come from? Ah, uh, uh, yes. You see, I believe that it is derived from the historical context in which Islam arises, that once you realize that there was no Muhammad and that this all does not spring from him, then 
you look at when it does start to arise and in what circumstances. And we see that the Arabs began to conquer before they had this Islamic theology. In the 630s, we have very clear historical evidence that they really did begin to conquer the Middle East and North Africa, Persia, of course, by the 650s, 660s, moving into Sindh and going on from there. And so it wasn't until the 690s, a considerable time after that, that you start to get any kind of mention of Muhammad as the actual prophet of Islam. And it's only in the 700s that you start to get an elaboration about Islamic theology and specifics about the Quran. And so it seems that what happened is that the rulers of this great empire put Islam together in order to preserve, protect, and defend their great empire. And this was after the pattern of the great empires of the day. When the Arabs began to conquer, there were two great powers in the world, the Roman Empire, which was Christian, and the Persian Empire, which was Zoroastrian. It was the religions that held the two empires together. There were no law, there were no, there were laws, there were plenty of laws. There were no parliaments, there was no constitution. It was understood that these were the empires of the people who held these particular religions. And this is why in the Christian context, there was such a care for theological precision. And the emperors would call councils of all the bishops to hammer out what the precise doctrine was, because this was a matter of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. So when you have this great Arab empire that has arisen, then the first thought it would be, in order to hold it together and to preserve its unity and to help it to grow, we need to have a common religion, like the other great empires do. And then once we have the common religion, we need to make the common religion martial, aggressive, expansionist, violent, because these are the virtues that will protect the empire itself. If people are taught from the beginning that it's good and virtuous to make war against those who are outside and to conquer and to seize their property and their lands and take them over, well, then you're going to have people doing it. And the empire is going to continue to prosper and expand. Right. So, uh, again, I, I'm still on your first chapter. And uh, you put a subheading called Death to Blasphemers. So, I just a question, just a thought. Why write to the first chapter? You know, you, you got me on the spot, my friend, because I wrote that book, as you noted, many years ago, and I haven't looked at it since. I don't actually read what <laughs> I've written, so I don't know what that's referring to in the book. I can tell you about blasphemers. Uh, I know that certainly to write a book like that, I was aware that it might end up getting people to threaten to kill me or try to kill me, and they have threatened to kill me and tried to kill me, so I was right about that. 
and it may be that that is what it was what the subhead you're you're asking about was referring to um, yes i mean it starts with the reference to theo van gogh's killing oh well there you go theo van gogh was killed i believe it was 2003 maybe or 4 uh in uh in the netherlands september 2004 uh yes thank you and he uh had written, made a film called submission that criticized the islamic treatment of women and actually depicted quran verses written <clears throat> on women's bodies and so it was sort of doubly blasphemous and obscene at the same time from an islamic perspective and uh he was killed in cold blood on the street and the killer stabbed a knife into his body and left it there that had a note attached to it that had a list of other people he wanted to kill and so this is why you don't see more of this kind of discussion about islam because violent intimidation works people are frightened and so they know that if they speak about these issues they could be putting themselves at great risk i know that you know i can tell you when i wrote the truth about muhammad i thought this is a great story just from a purely a literary point of view it's a remarkable story of this man who comes out and says he's a prophet and gets various followers and he's brutal and he's violent and he's self-aggrandizing and he's all these things and he still gains more followers and the whole story i thought was was fascinating and would lend itself to be a first-rate motion picture and so as it happened i was at an event i was speaking at an event where uh there was a famous film director i won't embarrass him by naming him here but a uh, very popular film director in the united states who has made a lot of hit movies and i uh said hey i i wrote this book about muhammad it would make a great movie and he just sort of laughed nervously and changed the subject because of course he knew and i knew nobody would want to make a film like this because everybody involved would be under threat of death and this is the way that uh many islamic groups have prevented a great deal of critical scrutiny of their religion all this time Yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole thing about the violence part—it's very, very important because, as a friend of mine today morning told me, that somewhere along the line, the violence as a tool is getting normalized as a cold-blooded murder is becoming a normalized part of our life. Oh, that's the way they are. Mm -hmm. And to, I mean, I, this is a particular word that the meaning of which everybody understands. That is nothing else to but install dashat in the mind of individuals. So you threaten Nupur Sharma, you threaten X, you threaten threaten Shalman Rushdie, and after thirty years you implement it. Mm -hmm. So you become a permanent target, no escape, no mm -hmm. respite. So the question arises here is that how does the civilized world contend to that? And if I may offer a suggestion here, is that should this particular entire psychology be made an essential reading as a part of abnormal psychology? Well, that's a good idea. I think that it needs to uh, be called attention to, and people need to be made aware, because the problem is that these jihadis work on the basis of intimidation, 
and most people don't even realize that they're being intimidated and that they're being bullied into submission. They don't understand what exactly is happening. And so it's very important that uh, in the first place, you don't uh, allow yourself to be intimidated. And so to have education in that regard, I think that's a great idea. And to alert people to this as a tactic. And in the second place, we simply have, as the civilized world, uh, so-called, we simply have to have the courage to stand up and say, well, you uh, may kill me, but I'm not going to stop telling the truth. And if enough people stand up, they can't kill everyone. And so it's it's the problem at core is that the non-Muslim world is cowardly and afraid and too easily intimidated. And that's what we have to try to counter or we've lost everything. Aren't we losing everything? Yeah. Okay, let's uh, go on to the main theme of the book. And uh, as, of course, the book is very voluminous. We can't uh, discuss it chapter by chapter. Uh, well, but uh, in general, there is a significant transformation uh, in the uh, life of Muhammad between Mecca and Medina. So even in the Quran, you have the revelation order, and which is given in the form of uh, Meccan verses and the Medinan verses. Uh, how do you explain the significance of this uh, to uh, lay audience? Of course, and I and Vibhutiji would know a little bit of the, for the benefit of audience. Muhammad is supposed to have gotten his first revelation in the year 610. And he got revelations through the year 632 when he died. And this is the Quran, those revelations. And from 610 to 622, he lived in Mecca where he was born. And then from 622 to 630, 631, he lived in Medina. Then he conquered Mecca, moved back to Mecca where he died. That is the outline of the story. The difference for the Quran is that in Mecca, he was a, a, the leader of a very small group of uh, a handful of people. And so he preached peace and tolerance. He did not really preach peace and tolerance the way people envision it today, but he did preach tolerance. It was more really for his own group. That is, he was calling upon the non-Muslims to tolerate his group. He was not really calling on the Muslims to tolerate anyone. But when he was uh, asked to come to Medina by the people of Medina, in Medina, he became for the first time a political and military leader. And as a political and military leader, he began to wage war against the non-Muslims, including the non-Muslims of Mecca. And he began to get revelations that justified and called upon the Muslims to wage this war. And so the Meccan passages of the Quran are much more violent than the Medina. I mean, I'm the sorry, other, backwards. The other way around. The passages are much more violent than the Meccan. The only problem is, is that they're not, uh, it's not a clear division. 
And in some cases, there's quite a lot of disagreement among the Islamic scholars as to whether something is Meccan or Medinan. However, there's no disagreement about the major passages. And the major passages that are the most violent and call for the most warfare are from Medina. And this is very important to because we have to understand that the Medinan passages where there's a contradiction take precedence over the Meccan. And so the... Uh, violent passages take precedence in Islamic theology over the more peaceful ones. And this is why we have this violence recurring throughout history. I take you to your chapter 7. Its, head, its heading is War is Deceit. War is Deceit is something that is a Hadith, a statement in a, that's in a Hadith. The Hadith are the uh, records of Muhammad's words and deeds. This is all ninth century legendary material here again. And the Hadith have volumes and volumes of material about what Muhammad said and did at practically every moment. And something that he said uh, more than once is supposedly war is deceit. And so war is deceit is a principle of Islamic warfare that you try to deceive your opponents. Muhammad in another hadith allows for lying uh, in various circumstances, including a husband can lie to his wife to keep the peace and in wartime. And so it's, it's striking to me that we have uh, conflicts between Muslims and non-Muslims all over the world. And many times the non-Muslims try to uh, bring about a negotiated settlement, most notably with Israel and the Palestinians. And the Palestinians are constantly explaining what they do on the basis of Islam. And the non-Muslims never pay any attention to Islam whatsoever. And they never consider the ramifications of a statement like war is deceit. It's only uh, uh, it's it, it, the, the negotiations are conducted as if both parties were on the same basis, both secular, post-Christian materialists of the West. And this is not the case. I, I wanted to definitely uh, talk about, you know, various parts of the book uh, about how, what are the, what have they borrowed from Christianity? You, I will throw in a couple of points and you can deal with them as we go along. One is the borrowings from Christianity and borrowings from others. How, why, why was it that rape was so difficult to prove? Why did, why was that done? That a woman has to bring in evidences of four people to prove that she was raped. Guess what? It's never happening. The other part is the satanic verses on which Salman Rushdie wrote, wrote his book. And then there is a satanic verses. Uh, you know, how does that happen? What was it in the satanic verses of trying to win over the enemy that has become such a doctrinaire thing, political philosophy? Well, that's two very big things to discuss. So uh, first, the satanic verses. The satanic verses is a real story from Islamic tradition uh, that Muhammad supposedly at one point was given verses that he wanted to cancel. So how do you cancel a divine revelation? He said it was from Satan. Now this calls into question everything. If you 
accept that Muhammad is a prophet, this causes great difficulty for you because if Muhammad could be inspired by Satan once, maybe he was inspired by Satan other times. You don't know. So it's a very dangerous ground. And this is why many Islamic apologists want to claim that the incident never happened at all. Wow. And uh, that it's the invention of enemies of Islam, but it's in early Islamic traditions. Mm -hmm. And it was from those early Islamic traditions that Salman Rushdie learned about it and made it the basis of his novel. And it was because it, this was considered blasphemous, of course, that he was uh, sentenced to death in the fatwa of the Ayatollah Khomeini and why he was stabbed uh, not too long ago. This is uh, one of the very great difficulties in Islamic tradition, of which there's so many. And another is this: what you're saying about rape. This very strange story has it that uh, the Muslims were in a caravan, and Aisha, Muhammad's child bride, was traveling on the back of a camel in a... Uh, I forgot the name of it. A howda? Howda, yes, howda. Yeah, yeah, you know, the box. that yeah, 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 howda. And uh, they took her off when they made a stop, and she went uh, over the hill, and when she came back, she lost her bracelet while she was out there, and she, when she came back, they had gone because they just put the howda back on the back of the camel and went, went on. They didn't realize she wasn't in it. Because she was just a little kid, she didn't weigh very much. So, Muhammad later, I'm sorry, not Muhammad yet, she's out there in the desert, and a Muslim soldier who was late comes along to join the caravan, and he sees her there, he's shocked, and he carries her back to the group. If, she, if he hadn't come along, she may have died out there because it's, it's the middle of nowhere. Now, the problem is that you have an unmarried woman and an unmarried man or a man and a woman not married to each other, and they are together, alone, which means, of course, that they had sexual relations. It doesn't in real life, but in, in the uh, story, there's no way they couldn't have because it's always assumed that if an unmarried couple are together, then they will. And consequently, Aisha was accused of adultery and sentenced to death. And Muhammad is very upset because he, he was very fond of her. And so in the story, he gets a divine revelation that there have to be four witnesses to establish adultery or any sexual crime, zina, any, any, any sexual indiscretion. Consequently, Aisha was freed because she there was no four there were no four witnesses and this is in the Quran in chapter twenty four verse four and twenty four verse thirteen that you have to have four witnesses. But because this provision was set in Islamic law, now when there's a case of rape, a woman can say she was raped and her testimony doesn't count in zina cases. So you have to have the four witnesses. You don't have the four witnesses. You can't prove the rape. And in fact, then a woman is incriminating herself by saying she was raped because she's saying she engaged in unlawful sexual intercourse. So most of the women 
as many as 75% of the women who are in prison in Pakistan today are actually the victims of rape, who are in prison because they were raped, but they cannot prove that they were victimized. They should take the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> US, US Constitution has provided. Now, that, now I understand where that Fifth Amendment comes from. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, let's go to the Mal Ghanimat. Yeah. I think that is one of the greatest attractions yeah. uh, for the for waging war in, in the Islamic tradition. Where does that come about? I'm sorry, the what? The, what the Mal Ghanimat, the war booty. The what? I'm sorry, I, I'm I, I'm having trouble hearing. War booty, booty. Oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, the spoils of war. Anima, as we call it, I think, Anima. In yes, yes, yes. Uh, pardon me. Yes, I got it now. Chapter 8 of the Quran, um, Al-Anfal, the spoils of war. This is a very important aspect of Islamic war making, that you are allowed, uh, the law of Allah, by the Quran, to seize the belongings and the wives of those whom you have defeated in war. And the only provision is in chapter 8, verse 41, that you have to give a fifth to the prophet. Now, of course, the prophet is no longer with us, if he ever was. So the Islamic leaders are supposed to get a fifth of what is taken in war. Uh, and there are stories about Muhammad uh, receiving a fifth, sometimes even the women who were seized in wartime. Now, this is a very important inducement. This is one of the reasons why Islamic jihadis have been such a formidable fighting force from the beginning of Islam, why they were able to conquer such large expanses of territory and to hold them for so many years, and why Islamic jihadis today fight so tenaciously against vastly superior forces like the jihadis in Afghanistan against the Americans and so on. What is it that makes them do this? It's that it's a kind of a win-win situation, that if they lose in battle, if they get killed, then they go to paradise where they cavort with the virgins. If they win in the battle, then they cavort with the women that they seize here, as well as enjoy the whatever property of the people that they have captured or killed. And so either way, they have massive benefits to the fighting. And so a fighting force was fashioned that has never been equaled. And that's why I think you uh, uh, devoted two chapters to uh, casting terror and uh, being victorious through terror. These are both... Uh, Statements of Muhammad. Muhammad said, uh, according to Islamic tradition, here again, this is all Islamic tradition, I have been made victorious through terror. Now, uh, it's interesting to note, when I wrote the book, The History of Jihad in 2018, there's a fellow who uh, made some videos purporting to refute it. He promised he was going to refute the whole book, but he only did the first chapter and then gave up. And uh, I knew that he wouldn't be able to go through the whole history. 
he was only taking issue with the material about the Quran and Muhammad. But his problem, one of the uh, the the only I only watched as far as in the first one where he took issue with my quoting Muhammad saying, I've been made victorious through terror, because he said, well, that just means the fear of God. That just means awe in the presence of the divine. And so it doesn't mean terror like terrorism. Now, of course, belying this is the fact that Muhammad himself engaged in what we would call terrorism. And so Muhammad would say, I have been, when Muhammad says, or is made to say, I have been made victorious through terror, there are plenty of incidents you can point to in his life where he's victorious through terror, and it's not the fear of God. Like uh, Kinana of Kaibar, when they raid the Kaibar oasis, where the Jews who have been exiled from Medina are taking refuge, he orders his people to light a fire on the chest of Kinana, the treasurer of the community, to find out where the treasury is is kept, and this and 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 this is the kind of thing that he orders routinely. You know, he tells Muhammad Maslama, one of his followers, that he can lie to Kabib and Al Ashraf in order to get close enough to him to kill him, and so on. And there's all kinds of terror in the Islamic sources, and so it's very clear that when Muhammad says. I have been made victorious through terror. He means something much more clo much closer to terrorism as we understand it in our own age than he does something like the awe in front of the divine. Right. We have, we have, we have lots of questions and the book is so immense. But there is one thing which I have wanted to ask, and this is referred in your book that Muhammad becomes a warlord. And you talk about specifically that how the Muslims and the Jews became such full of hate for each other. Where did this, when did this happen? How did this happen? And now it seems to be coming over to us Hindus as well. So we are branded as, they have found the cause celebrate to brand us as infidels of a different kind and Jews on the other hand. So how does one contend with that? How does, how did that happen? And what must we do about it? Well, the primary, I don't know that you can do anything about it except stand strong uh, because these things are theologically based. These things are based on what they believe God told them. And consequently, there isn't anything you can do that's going to make them think that they shouldn't do what God told them. And so the only thing you can do is, is be strong in the face of it because these are people who understand the world in terms of strength and weakness. And so they will respect strength but despise weakness and take advantage of it. When the BJP condemns Nupur Sharma and uh, who was it they just expelled, this other right. fellow? Right. Yeah, the, the, that's just projecting weakness. And that's only going to cause more trouble. It's not going to solve, pacify anything or solve any problems. But in any case, why the hostility to the Jews and the Hindus in particular? The Jews and the Hindus are singled out in the Quran. The Hindus aren't mentioned by name ever in the Quran. But there, I'll tell you, chapter 5, verse 82 of the Quran says that the people who are, who have the most hatred for the believers, for the Muslims, are the Jews and those who associate partners with Allah. 
Now, what does it mean to associate partners with Allah? It means to worship something as God besides Allah. And so the Hindus, with the multiplicity of gods, they are the worst enemies of the Muslims. And so are the Jews. This is chapter 5, verse 82 of the Quran. And consequently, you will find, because Muslims read this and take it seriously as the perfect word of Allah, you will find Muslims who burn with particular hostility toward Jews and Hindus on precisely this basis. Now, why the antagonism toward the Jews? That goes back in Islam, in the origins of Islam, it seems to go back, that is, to the fact that Muhammad was positioning himself in the Islamic traditions as the new prophet of the Jews, as another prophet in the biblical line, the line of Abraham, and that the, uh, the prophets were then all teaching Islam, and Muhammad was just confirming their teachings. Now, obviously, the Jews would not say the prophets are all teaching Islam. They would find that absurd. And they found it absurd when the Muslims would say, our book, the Quran, confirms the Torah, because it didn't. But how do you explain that? If you're a Muslim and you have this book and you think it confirms the Torah and it doesn't, then you either have to say, oh, I guess I was wrong. I guess my religion is incorrect. It's much more likely that you'll say the other thing, that, oh, the Jews have altered their scriptures to erase mention of Muhammad and Islam and to change the teachings so they don't reflect what Islam teaches. And so the Jews are considered especially guilty because they are supposed to have exalted their, uh, I mean, uh, uh, dared to alter their texts, not exalted, dared to alter their texts so that the connections with Islam are erased. So the Christians are charged with the same thing, actually. But uh, the Christians, <laughs> they're not the enemies of the Muslims. They are depicted as such elsewhere, but not there. So the Jews and the Hindus have it worse. <laughs> so I think uh, uh, we've got so many questions that we'll take time dealing with them. So just the... Uh, final subchapter that you have, how to deal with it. Well, how to deal with it is the, uh, the never-ending question. One of the things that I have said ever since then is that we have to be true to ourselves. And so if we were true to ourselves, then I would respectfully suggest that Nupur Sharma and the others would never have been disciplined by the BJP, never have been dismissed by the BJP, that the BJP would uh, stand up for their right to speak as, as they wished because of the principle of the freedom of speech, of the principle of freedom of expression, free inquiry, the right of people to respectfully disagree, the necessity of all parties not to do violence to those who disagree to kowtow to those who do violence to dis against those they disagree with is only to invite more violence. It's just Quite the true. same thing in the United States that uh, we have 
a tolerance for all kinds of things that are not tolerated ordinarily in American law. There are many polygamous families in the United States because Islam allows for polygamy. And yet polygamy is technically illegal in the United States. So if Islam, allow, Islam allows for polygamy and you have polygamists, as it happens, most of the polygamists are people who are very hardline in their observance of Islam, which is why they think polygamy is okay to start with. Many of those people are involved in jihad. So if you were to prosecute the polygamy, you'd find a lot of jihadis. But they don't do this. They just let it go by and turn a blind eye. And they are af afraid that if they do otherwise, they'll offend the Muslim community. And so then the Muslim community is not blind and they see this and they realize, oh, they're afraid of us and afraid that we'll get angry. And so we can get what we want by being angry. And then we'll get more concessions. That's, That's right. my favorite team. They are playing the game better. The game yeah. of democracy, they are playing it much better. And it's time we came up with an, a better game plan. And this brings me to my last inquiry with you, Robert and Sanjayji. Please permit me that indulgence. Do we? There, there is always a flashpoint. There is always a flashpoint when something becomes intolerable. This far and no further. Do you think that the West and the democracies will crumble and collapse between the demand of requirements of blasphemy and phobia versus freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Yeah, I think freedom of speech is on its way out. I'm sorry to say it, but uh, nobody understands it. Nobody respects it. The administration that's in power now is against it. The party of the administration that's in power now is against it. The administration tried to establish a disinformation governance board that would police speech. It was stopped by uh, overwhelming negative public opinion. But Barack Obama, the very well-respected former president, and Hillary Clinton, the, the, the last candidate from the same party, they have both spoken about the need to have controls over speech, controls over the Internet, so that people can't just be saying things that essentially that they don't want said. Uh, when you have this, and this party has all the power, and it doesn't look as if they're going to lose it. So I don't see how the freedom of speech is going to survive. And eventually I suspect that it will be a criminal matter to speak in, in a way that offends Muslims. Uh, this is coming from the left, though, not from the Islamic groups. This is coming from uh, the authoritarians who control the discourse and who believe that the Muslims are their allies because they are the victims of Islamophobia and that consequently they have to protect their interests. And so they will seal up any discussion like the one we're having right now. Right, right. So I think uh, let's go to the questions now before that once again request to all the viewers to please like this video share it around as much as you can also subscribe the channel and certainly favor us with some financial help you have the links right here okay let's go to 